I'm John. And I'm David. And you're listening to the Autocorrect Podcast. Okay, so this is uh, take, you know, two, is this two, three? <laughs> three. three. We, we had two takes last time, so this is number three now. Right. Thank so, you, uh, thank you, WebEx, for uh, <laughs> trying to solve our Zoom issues. Um, yeah, but uh, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. Hi. I uh, my name is Dwight Coleman. I'm uh, the director of the Inner Space Center, and we're at the University of Rhode Island Graduate School of Oceanography. And uh, I'm a, a PhD in in marine geology and geophysics, and I've been uh, working with ocean exploration for about 20 years now. And uh, we run a center here at URI that uh, focuses on telepresence and live interactions with ships at sea. And so uh, the users I support are basically scientists and outreach professionals who take advantage of all these live feeds streaming in from ships that are doing live explorations with uh, vehicle technology, ROVs, and exploring the deep ocean. So uh, we've done. We've done, I don't, I don't know if we shared this with you, but we've done a little bit of deep dives into uh, older expeditions, more, you know, Ernest Shackleton era. Yeah, uh, we were mostly uh, focusing on <laughs> polar exploration. Right. But, uh, yeah. but this, uh, I, you know, the, you sent us some of the uh, expedition, you sent us a couple links to some of the expeditions you've been on, which are really interesting, which we'll get into sure. in a minute. But sure. uh, is, is it, these look, these are in the Hawaii uh, area. Most recently, we've been working around Hawaii a lot. Yeah, yeah. Is have you have you done any? Have you you know normally stayed around that area, or have you done other uh, other expeditions oh, all around? No, throughout my career, um, we've been all over the world. Really, um, the Pacific Ocean is the largest and sort of least explored and and uh, sort of deepest and most interesting, I guess, of all the oceans. So we do spend more time in the Pacific Ocean than other oceans for the kind of work that we're interested in doing right it doesn't mean that the pacific ocean is better for ocean research for any reason it just for ocean exploration and the things that we're studying and funded to study uh the pacific ocean is sort of the place to be but i've been over to the mediterranean sea i've been to uh the um uh all areas of the pacific and atlantic oceans uh, I've been over to uh, the the um, uh, the deepest lake in the world, Lake Baikal. I've done a lot of work in yep. the Great Great Lakes as well. Um, we've done some projects up to uh, the polar regions and uh, uh, the, the um, and off the Canadian Arctic, for example, and mm -hmm. also in Antarctica. Yeah. So, so I think we've covered pretty much all the corners of the year. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think in a little bit we'll circle back around to your uh, Arctic exploration. But first, I want to talk about your most recent exploration or expedition in sure. uh, the Hawaii area. The two. So you the, I guess yep. it was April to May, right? And the other was uh, August. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, both of those projects were um, with the Ocean Exploration Trust, uh, who is a partner institution of ours here at U University of Rhode Island School of Oceanography. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were on a ship called the EV Nautilus, Exploration Vessel Nautilus. It's a ship that's completely dedicated to ocean exploration and is uh, based out of Hawaii. So we've been doing a lot of work in uh, Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, 
sort of a mouthful. It's a That's Hawaiian. How you it. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we read that and we were wondering how you say that. Oh my! We, well, we weren't even going to try. Probably, <laughs> my pronunciation is probably pretty poor there too. But um, but yeah, we work uh, very closely with the National Monument, which is a marine protected area. It was um, set aside uh, by um, through through basically uh, presidential decrees by uh, both um, Obama and Bush uh, as they were leaving office, and it's been expanded. So it includes all of the Hawaiian Islands, including the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, which really people know very little about. Um, these are islands that um, go past, uh, I guess, far farther west than um, than Kauai, which is basically the largest inhab or the uh, sort of westernmost inhabited Hawaiian island, and uh, it goes out towards uh, Midway Island, which is halfway along the Hawaiian Emperor Seamount chain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, right. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you were, what you were doing there, exactly? Sure. So, um, the 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 funding and the partnership program that we are part of here is uh, called the Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute. And it's funded by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and their Office of Ocean Exploration. And because um, these areas have been designated as national monuments and marine protected areas, and because they're um, part of the United States exclusive economic zone, um, there's they're of high interest for us to learn more about. Mm -hmm. and, just, just like any area in the United States that's underwater, uh, the EEZ exclusive economic zone is a is an area that goes 200 miles out from the coastline, and it includes all the underwater um, uh, resources and habitat um, out to that territorial limit. Beyond that, it's international waters. So the United States has exclusive economic rights to um, explore and exploit resources in the economic zone. No other country is allowed to do that without very special permissions. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a large area that's large, that's completely not, you know, almost completely unmapped and unexplored, and it's particularly in the Pacific Ocean. So around Hawaii and around um, the territorial trust islands of the Pacific, the U.S. has huge expanses of marine real estate that is unexplored. So they don't. They, we don't even have really good maps of these areas. So the ships that we work with um, have technology called multi-beam sonar, mm -hmm. and we use that to uh, map the seafloor. So that's really the first order of business: is to make a really good map, understand what the depths are, and what the limits of uh, the terrain is, so that we can understand what's within those 200 nautical miles. And then, um, and then we also the next step is to characterize. And the way we characterize uh, typically is by using robotic vehicle systems or autonomous vehicle systems to go down and collect samples and take photographs of the seafloor, collect video footage of the seafloor. And that tells us, um, it helps us to what we call ground truth, the acoustic data. So the mapping data um, tells us a lot of detail about the depths and the nature of the seafloor, but we don't actually know any details beyond that unless we go put our eyeballs on it and our hands on it, which is through ro robotic technology to collect those samples and uh, take pictures of, of the resources that are there. So this is biological, geological, and even archaeological um, documentation of uh, the resources and help that helps characterize the places that we're exploring. And so because of the, around the Hawaiian Islands and the National Monument, largely unexplored, 
we've been chipping away for years at exploring this area and documenting what's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we uh, we're looking. So we have those two uh, those two main links you sent us. We were looking at, and we see right right at the head. It shows the uh, that big map uh, on the first yep. one. It shows that big like, map yeah, the, array. The, yeah, it's a huge map. area. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, once like the island would be really small. Like this, just this past um, July, August, I think it was, we were working around um, uh, Lehow Island, which was an uninhabited rock, basically. Tiny, mm -hmm. tiny little piece of land, mostly occupied by birds. And But the 200-mile limit around that rock is huge and yeah. includes an entire underwater mountain. And it uh, goes down to depths almost reaching 5,000 meters and... Uh, just an incredible expanse of real estate that U.S. has complete control over that we don't even really understand what's there. So when you go on a mission like this to go uh, mapping, what's your what's the strategy? Do you guys work outward, work inward, like divide it into quadrants? What's the typical strategy? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, you know, certainly it's uh, filling in gaps in coverage that, um, you know, you don't want to repeat work that's already been done. So uh, um, often there's, uh, transits and other track lines that go through this area from other ships that may have been running their sonar systems. So we, we try to optimize our survey strategy based around what data already exists, but then, um, the, 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 uh, the best quality data that you collect, uh, by running multi-beam sonar lines is, um, parallel to the contour. So you don't go uphill or downhill, basically you want to go parallel to the uh, seabed contour and that yep. gives you the best sort of sonar coverage uh um and the best quality data because um the swath of the the swath of the sonar basically is fixed and stays the same right yep. and you adjust it a little bit but as the water gets shallower your swath is narrower and as you go deeper the swath is larger so you're always optimizing uh kind of collecting that um uh quantity and quality of data so you parallel contour. So, you, so that means going in kind of survey lines uh, that are kind of long and straight, if you can, or maybe slightly curved. And then they they come back and you could go the other way. And we call it kind of mowing the lawn. So it'd be like the same <laughs> strategy you would if yeah. you were, let's say, yeah. mowing mowing your hill, you know, uh, yeah. in your backyard, something like that. So you, you try to figure out the best way to get the most efficient way to cut all the grass, you know. Mm. So it really is kind of mowing the lawn for a lot of it. And then um, we have uh, different vehicle technologies, too. In um, July and August, we took a vehicle with us from the University of New Hampshire that was um, called Drix, uh, D-R-I-X. Uh, it's new technology from a company called Xblue, and it's an autonomous surface vessel, a, an ASV, and it has a multi-beam sonar on it, and it's capable of um, just going and mapping autonomously, and that focused on the shallower water. So because uh, the larger ships are very inefficient doing shallow water, because like I said, that swath is really narrow right. um, and you can only go a fixed speed and we have to take big turns, uh, the small unmanned vessel can go really quickly um, and make really tight turns and do much more precision surveys. So it's more optimized for shallow water. Um, so we basically just look at the terrain that uh, we want to cover and we look at the gaps in the coverage and we... Um, uh, basically lay it out. And we we prioritize regions because of geological interest mostly or biological interest. Mm -hmm. We um, mm -hmm. Through satellites, you can get a preliminary look at what the data is uh, for depths. 
Um, that's through technology called satellite altimetry. Uh, basically, um, it measures deviations in the gravity field of the Earth, and those gravity field deviations uh, are uh, indicative of the um, depth and the uh, material that's below. And so you, we can get a very, but but those res, that resolution is like on the scale of kilometer, or something like there are hundreds of meters. So, right. Yeah. And, uh, and so we we kind of know where the high priority areas of interest are, and we'll focus on that first, just because as opposed to going to some huge just flat flat bunch of nothing yeah. that we might not be very interesting. We try to focus on the more challenging, more interesting areas first. So that's kind of our mapping strategy. And then um, the dive strategy kind of follows that. And that's based on the science goals mostly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a huge area you're covering. I mean, we're, we're looking at this like map, uh, this, this map that's on here. We, we, we saw the, uh, the surface vessels on the other, on that other, uh, that other link is actually really interesting. It it, it looks like a submarine. I, I was just thinking that. <laughs> it was, I uh, was just yeah. thinking that actually. But we were, we were looking at that, and I was trying to figure out if it was just a surface vehicle uh, or if it was a submersible. So that's that's pretty interesting. But that's a that yeah, it looks like a submarine because it has like what looks like a conning tower. Right. Uh, but it's not. It's a um. But but a lot of it is underwater because um it has a deep keel. And you want it to be steady and stable on the surface, so it cuts through the. It penetrates. It's it's a wave piercing technology, so it penetrates through. So it's not affected as much by the swell and the and the um, uh, chop of the sea. Right. That, that makes, makes a lot sense. of sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it but it doesn't dive underwater. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. we have other vehicles that do that. This right. one and it, and it and that conning tower, the sail, as we call it, is important mm -hmm. for. Um, uh, all the communication, you can see the instrumentation on the top of it. That's uh, for us to, we have a marine marine broadband radio connection to yep. it. We have a Wi-Fi connection to it. We have um, uh, Iridium satellite connection to it. So it'll never get lost and we can always tell it to come home, uh, uh, drive it, drive it like an ROV even, um, uh, or like a remote surface vehicle. And uh, yeah, so so it's it's necessary to have something above the water for safety and communications. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've seen it's got a whole got a whole lot. Plus, of, plus you can imagine too that it um that it uh is an it's an obstacle out there for ships. So you want to yeah. have something that uh, can reflect the radar and you know be able to tell ships uh, that something's out there not to hit it. <laughs> right. Have yeah. have a surface. Um so with you know, we were talking about the actual pattern you follow and everything, but with with an area so big, you know, you're pulling in a lot of data. I'm assuming, um, yeah. huge, huge amounts of data. Is that something that you like process on the ship, or is that something that you collect a lot and process it uh, after? Yeah. After. Uh, so a lot of it depends on um, the nature of the work that we're doing. There's sort of the generic nature, which is just exploration. But um, for this particular project, using the Drix vehicle. Uh, the NOAA Office of Coast Survey uh, was very interested in the data, and they are the ones responsible for the nautical charts. Mm -hmm. So uh, their their data has to go through kind of a different processing pipeline and a lot more rigor uh, than what we would typically do for general exploration projects, where we just kind of need to know roughly uh, the terrain because we're going to dive ROVs there. <clears throat> but for Office of Coast Survey, they are going to make charts out of this data. So they um, they had uh, we had like an army of people on the ship that were processing data. So it it just depends. 
that particular project, we probably had not an army. We had six people probably whose job it was to process, do quality control of data and uh, make sure and, and do the preliminary processing, not the complete processing of it. Um, on a typical exploration project, we would have maybe two people that were doing data processing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. And their job would be to um, turn around the data quickly. Um, we basically work these ships 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a typical mode of operation would be maybe map at night uh, and then do the ROV dives during the day. And that's just sort of typical. Yeah, right? that makes a lot of sense. And then in order to dive the ROV during the day, you want to have you want to we, we navigate the ROVs very carefully and we plan our dives based on the mapping. So um, <clears throat> we have a very quick turnaround of the data. So uh, it's sort of a rough job of processing the data, but we make a pretty decent map. So that we're at least able to dive the ROV safely, navigate through the terrain, and um, accomplish the best science, really, because that depends on how you've selected the dive track and um, how the quality of the mapping data is to follow. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the details of the ROV that you guys used on uh, on this mission? And was it the same as the one that you used on the, the second mission that you went out on? Yeah, the... the um... The mission that we used the Drix vehicle, we didn't actually dive the ROV. Okay. Um, the ship, um, it's 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 challenging to support two full-on teams of um, technology operators. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Um, yeah, but uh, we we do it often, but usually not this far away because we're thousands of miles from from Honolulu, and uh, because we had all those Office of Coast Survey people with us to do all the detailed mapping, we didn't have really room on the ship for extra rov uh, operations so that uh so it was only the first mission that we had the rov on we did mapping on that one as well that was at lula uh, lula ridge mm -hmm. and lula ridge is sort of an interesting suite of seamounts uh volcanic origin seamounts um in the one of the most remote corners of the monument and um, that we did, um, we already had some preliminary mapping done. So we filled in some gaps and did some extra mapping, but it was really just focused on the seamounts themselves and not the areas in between the seamounts. And so we would map at night and then dive during the day there. Sometimes we would dive as long as 24 hours. And then it all becomes weather dependent too. If the weather's too rough, you can't dive the ROVs. So you do extra mapping. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's what we did on those seamounts. And we were basically um, trying to characterize the origin of those seamounts. We were looking at um, uh, the the deep sea coral ecosystem. Uh, there was a lot of science interest in how these coral ecosystems evolve and uh, expand, uh, and how they're interconnected to the different uh, adjacent seamounts. And then we were doing a lot of work with um, with uh, what's called manganese crusts. So this is basically alteration of the rock. So um, volcanic rock is basalt and that's what erupts on the seafloor and that's what creates these mountains under underwater yep. by and large or volcanic uh, erupting basaltic rock. As basaltic rock lives in contact with the seawater for centuries, thousands, up to millions of years, um, it the seawater alters the rock it weathers it, it yep. changes. It. And um, you get what's called manganese uh, coatings or manganese crusts. Mm -hmm. And um, those are potentially economically interesting. And um, they uh, 
manganese nodules, for example, and uh, manganese crusts, ferromanganese crusts are known to um, also have small concentrations of rare earth elements, for example, um, elements and, and uh, minerals that may be uh, valuable toward, to say, battery technology or um, telecommunication phone technology. So there's huge demand on obviously smartphone technology, right? Well, batteries and the electronics that go into smartphones rely on things like nickel and cobalt and some of these elements that are pretty scarce. And these manganese right. uh, crusts are important economically for that. So there was a lot of science interest in trying to understand more about the nature of the manganese crusts, how thick they are, what concentrations they were. And so we were working with a team from the US Geological Survey who was helping us to assess that basically. We weren't studying the Lilikalani Ridge because we thought they were going to be economically important. That wasn't really the goal to say, oh, we're going to mine this area. No, we they were just unknown. It was an opportunistic time to study a diverse remote area of the earth that we knew had these crusts and to basically just learn more about it. And so a lot of samples were collected. And one of the um, project lead scientists, Beth Orcutt from Bigelow Labs, is a microbiologist and she was very interested in the animals that were living the microbes that were living in those manganese crusts and the role that they play in producing those crusts of really interesting research you know just fundamental understanding about how these manganese crusts form and what role microbes play and so there was a lot of research there and then just a lot of other uh sampling we we wanted to understand the age and nature of these seamounts from a volcanic standpoint just to understand how the earth operates and we're trying to understand more about the biological resources that were uh, all over these seamounts, uh, mostly deep sea coral ecosystems, sponges, uh, the fish that were living there. So general exploration, some of it focused on particular science and research goals, but a lot of it was um, was uh, just general exploration work. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, we talked uh, we talked a little bit about uh, you mentioned that there were uh, different you know numbers of people or certain aspects of the expeditions, depending on what you're focusing on. And mm -hmm. when you have something like, I don't know if there's kind of a standard crew that you would have or like a, a core crew, but when you go on these expeditions, what does like the crew look like in terms of specialties and number of people and things on any given vessel? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, uh, it's always different. It all depends on, uh, you know, the nature of the science and the mission of the organization and whatnot. But um, generally, for years, I've been uh, working with the Ocean Exploration Trust and the Nautilus program, and um, we have an amazing, talented group group of people um, and a very robust um, intern and training program, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so <clears throat> basically, there's departments and uh there's like the science department, there's the um, uh, vehicle department, the ROV department, say, there's the mapping department, uh, there's the um, uh, data data engineering department, and then there's the ship's crew itself, the people, the, the mates and the, and the able-bodied seamen and the engineers in the engine room uh, <clears throat> and um, the bosun and chief engineer. Uh, a part of the ship's crew. So you you have all these departments and uh, we all share the same house. So we're all living together. There's about 50 of us. I think 48 exactly on the Nautilus is a full contingency. Mm -hmm. um, 17 are crew. 
Uh, most of the crew are foreign. It's a it's a foreign flag vessel. Most of the crew are actually Ukrainian and um, some from uh, Central America and uh, and other far far reaching regions. And so that creates incredible diversity and interest uh, interesting uh, nature to the to the people that staff the crew. Mm -hmm. And then um, the Ocean Exploration Trust operates kind of the core. Um, group of people that provide at least senior leadership in the different departments of uh, science and uh, uh, vehicle technology and data engineering and education outreach is another big department as well, I forgot to mention. Um, but then the other people, so so generally we need three from each department and they're all on watch together. You, you, you do um, three watches essentially. And um, you all have different roles while you're on watch. All the different departments are represented, and um, there's usually a senior, and then a junior, and then an, like an intern. Mm -hmm. on, sorry, on each of these projects, and the intern is a pretty robust program where uh, students from different institutions can apply to come out to sea with us, and they get trained in one of the disciplines that they're interested in: science, or generally science, or engineering, or communications outreach. Right, and uh, it's a program that really works, and it's amazing, and. It's fun, and there's a lot of mentoring and a lot of camaraderie, and uh, we're shipmates, you know. So it's it's fun. Uh, the the science gets uh, determined by different groups that propose uh, the projects with us, and we are often partnering up with other institutions, like on the uh, Lilikalani Ridge project I mentioned. Beth Orcutt from Bigelow Labs was a partner. Well, she had written a proposal to NOAA and got some funding, and uh, be came invited as our lead scientist for that particular leg. Mm -hmm. Every leg's different and it might have different lead scientists, different science objectives, depending on where we're going. The uh, Drix project uh, with, with the uh, mapping that we did with the autonomous vehicle with the University of New Hampshire was mostly focused around that, the engineering of that <clears throat> to get that vehicle uh, working perfectly and um, uh, to, to make it sustainable for future operations. Um, other projects that they support, um, it just it it depends on on the the resources. We usually like to have at least a couple of um, skilled biologists on board who understand all the marine life that we're looking at and can help in the lab and document um, the animal life and uh, take samples and uh, process those samples. And we like to have mapping specialists who can process all the uh, sonar data that we collect and uh, geologists to collect the rocks and sediment and uh, characterize that. Um, but a lot of this is also connected through telepresence to shore. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Inner Space Center is all about at URI. And uh, then we can network in experts from all over the world. Uh, so it's not just the people that we bring on the ship when we go to sea. It's the network of people that we tap into uh, from shore. Yeah. That's actually, you said it was a foreign flag vessel. Yes. I didn't, I did not know that. I didn't that's, either. That's interesting. Yeah, I never do that either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, no other ships work with, especially our ships. They're not. They're they're U.S. flag. They're federal government uh, owned ships. Yeah. Um, there's different rules and different laws uh, with foreign flag ships, of course. Right. Um, yeah. They're flags of convenience mostly, um, and a lot of commercial vessels are foreign flagged. Yeah, you would you would find that. And, right. Uh, there's various reasons for that, but yeah, it would it just works out for the. Uh, the way we operate the Nautilus, that um, that um, it's a flag of opportunity and a crew of opportunity, and that works really well for the program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, let's pivot back uh, 
you said you did some Arctic, some work in the Arctic. Yeah, we, we just Correct. finished yeah. our sort of like Arctic exploration series. Oh, um, nice. Which really ended up being a polar exploration series, but it's the thought that counts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, one sounds a little, one sounds a little uh, better. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, right. So um, I actually did not go on this mission myself. I helped, I was one of the leaders. I was one of the PIs of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, I supported it from shore. But I did go. Um, I did go to Sweden to equip the ship with all the technology that we needed to do the project. So uh, th- we used it. It was funded by the National Science Foundation. It was called the Northwest Passage Project, mm-hmm. and it was on. Um, we got um, ship time on a Swedish icebreaker called Odin, and it was uh, the really the probably the greatest polar research ship in the world. I think uh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool ship. It's a very cool ship. Um, We're and, just pulling up a picture of it right now. Uh, yeah, Odin spelled with an E, O-D-E-N. O-E-N. Yeah. And it's uh, the Swedish icebreaker Odin. Wow, and, I've seen um, this. Yeah, I have yeah, too. Eight, eight, store, eight or nine stories tall, elevate. You have to take an elevator to go That's up to the upper huge. deck. huge. Uh, wow. Just giant. That and, is uh, an impressive uh, ship. Really yeah, innovative way of how it breaks ice. It's one of the most extreme ice class ships, so it can break like the thickest ice possible. I mean, short of nuclear icebreakers for the Navy or something like that. You yeah. Know? Um, but, uh, Holy the cow. Yeah. on this thing. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So we had a hu- huge project that had a lot of different um, science goals to it. Um, a filmmaking goal. We produced a, a, a documentary about mm-hmm. the mission um, and uh, uh, focused on a lot of the nature and beauty of the Arctic, um, focused on the ice focused on the change in climate, uh, focused on the seabirds and marine life, um, and focused on the um, physical and chemical oceanography. We were trying to understand the different water masses that were at play interacting with each other in the in the uh, Northwest Passage area and how it um, affects climate potentially and how um, an ice-free Arctic might change our future, right? Right. And uh, uh, we also had a very robust education program built around it, and we had cohorts of students from five different minority-serving institutions uh, participate in the different science aspects that we were doing. And um, we did a huge educational outreach program with uh, live interactions to uh, the Smithsonian uh, and the Exploratorium and the Alaska Sea Life Center and uh, did something like 40 or 50 uh, live broadcasts uh, from live from the Arctic, wow. uh, which is really cool. And uh, it uh, took years of planning. Uh, we, we had been um, on another ship at one point that um, we had to cancel the project for we actually got, were on two or three different ships trying to plan this project for years. Mm-hmm. We finally pulled it off with the help of uh, National Science Foundation and the scheduling of the Odin, because uh, it's not an easy place to get to, right? No, absolutely uh, not. <laughs> and when was this? What what year did this? Uh, uh... Yeah, this was in the summer of 2019. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yep. So a c- couple years ago now. Um, but that was our, our uh, first project into the Arctic. Uh, they actually retraced some of the steps of the Franklin Expedition. And, um, oh, really? Um, That's interesting. That. Yeah. Yeah. We talked they, about um, that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. 
They, yeah, the Erebus and Terror were two ships, and uh, they actually found them uh, just a couple of years ago, right before this expedition, like the, in 2017, 18, they found uh, the remains of the Erebus and Terror. Uh, they got locked in the ice, but the Franklin expedition participants abandoned ship and they walked across the ice and yep. mm -hmm. uh, they all died and and they're buried this even the grave markers uh, up there that they visited. It was part of the storytelling that they did with the documentary that they made. Mm -hmm. Do you um, know what the name of the documentary was? Uh, yeah. Um, I'll have to dig that <laughs> out. <Sorry. laughs> but, uh, that's yeah, that's interesting. I actually so I took a class uh, one of my electives was a class about living in extreme environments yeah. and uh one of the first times i actually like learned any any significant amount about that was in that class and we went through a whole a whole thing yeah. about how that happened and, and the uh you know the finding of it also uh later on which so cool. it was a really interesting thing and then we talked about it a little bit in yeah. our uh, series so that's that's interesting that that was uh yeah, the do sorry, I just uh, I just re remembered frozen obsession. Um, okay. I, it was it was it used to roll right off my tongue, and uh, but it's been three years since we did the project, so I just yeah. forgot Sorry about that. But frozen obsession, yeah, and it was um, uh, it aired uh, it aired internationally, and um, it was on uh, through through partnerships with BBC and National Geographic mostly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we continue to work with that filmmaker who's very interested in doing IMAX productions and other productions. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to get something going in uh, Bikini uh, Atoll. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that, that's also an incredibly interesting place. Yeah, yeah. I, so, especially uh, with the history that on. we've given it. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's the story they want to tell, right? Because yeah. it's yeah, obviously goes back to A-bomb testing and... Uh, um the sort of survival of coral reef over time and what happens and uh mm -hmm. also archaeologically uh sort of what's happened to all these ships that they sunk um yep. there so interesting stories to be told with that project but we don't have we don't have it quite figured out yet or the funding yet but uh we're working on it so um shackleton you mentioned early on that would have been an interesting one to do i wish we were involved in that project that is an incredible story and what a beautifully preserved shipwreck it's oh, incredible yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it makes sense how well it's preserved because it's in polar waters but yeah. it, it's still yeah. just incredible yeah very it's, deep it's too. deep yeah. yeah 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 no i was so impressed that uh they finally found it and uh upset that it wasn't us yeah <laughs> Yeah, we um, talked about that a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the history of snow cruisers, um, but no. we we talked about those also in uh, a, a previous episode. That was, I think, one of our first. I think uh, that Arctic. was the first. I think that was the first Arctic episode. Yeah, these were they're land based uh, expedition vehicles that were pretty much like a building on wheels. It, um, pretty, so. pretty incredible really? machines. It, yeah. it was a, it was a great idea that was executed poorly. Yeah. Oh right. Was it in Antarctica or yes. in the Arctic? Yeah. Antarctica. Antarctica. Yeah. Yep. It's still there somewhere. Well, it's at the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> no. probably. Yeah, but most likely. It, it was abandoned. Uh, I'll, I'll actually, I can send you the link on the episode we did. It was actually really interesting. Yeah. But uh, that's cool. And that, that's yeah. actually sort of the a little bit about me. That's sort of what got me interested in the Arctic at all. Was yeah. was that mission? Yeah. Yeah, wild. I mean, the stories that you hear of these groups, especially going back to the 1800s or whatever, like it's just remarkable and what people absolutely, yeah, 
Yeah. It's like taking tall ships there. I mean, it's hard enough even yeah. today. Yeah, it's amazing to think that people sailed with modern technology. <laughs> right. How, how difficult we're finding it to get there with diesel power and people sailed there. I know. It's yeah, there's a different different uh race of human back then. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the Antarctic is definitely not a very forgiving climate. Not in the no. least. <laughs> so no. yeah, remarkable. Yeah. You mentioned earlier uh when we were talking about the uh the icebreaker and that, that, that expedition that about uh, outfitting the ship. Um, oh yeah. And, and how, and that one, that, that ship, but also like between different ships and different expeditions, how much of actual like outfitting and, and changing of the equipment goes on between and yeah. how much of the customization is there? Or is it just, are there labs yeah. that are set up to be versatile? Um, usually the mobilization for every expedition is, is, pretty pretty intense and difficult and you know challenging um you know for for from from my work what we had to put on the odin was mostly the telecommunications equipment yep. so this the satellite um tracking antenna and the broadcast equipment and um so a lot of video engineering satellite engineering network engineering went into that and the odin had that capability but just not to the level that we needed it to be right so they yep. mostly had their telecommunications set up to be for emergency, you know, for emergencies and for operations and that's it. And pretty low bandwidth stuff. And, right. you know, we were trying to do live broad, live television broadcasts basically. So uh, we had to bring our own gear for that. And, um, uh, but there's, there's different categories of ships. Um, for example, in the United States, um, there's a, a group called UNOLS, and they're the University National Oceanographic Laboratory System. Mm -hmm. um, University of Rhode Island operates the RV Endeavor. They're one of our UNOLS ships. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution has the Atlantis and the Armstrong. Scripps Institution of Oceanography has their ships. University of Washington, you know, a couple in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. So there's about 20 of these ships. And they need to be like Swiss Army knives. They they right. aren't purpose built ships for any particular project or mission, but they need to be able to be versatile enough to accommodate almost any uh, technology or uh, research program that charters the ship. Essentially, um, the ships I work with more for um, ocean exploration are the Nautilus and that we talked about, and also the Okeanos Explorer. Yep. Now yep. those are more purpose built ships that have. The satellite technology for telecommunications they have the rov systems they have the mapping systems mm -hmm. so you don't have to provide that so mobilization in there is actually quite easy and it's really just the science equipment and any other vehicles that get brought um compared to the UNOL ships where for example we just came off a project on university of hawaii's ship the kilo moana and that was in collaboration with uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and the Jason ROV system. Mm -hmm. yep. They brought five 20-foot shipping containers. They had winches and deep cables and spare parts and Ooh. rigging van, tool vans and uh, nine people or more and um, yeah. just a massive mobilization, yeah. right? That they yeah. did in five, four or five days or something. But, That's impressive. Um, so, wow. Yeah, but that's what they do. They they go on these other ships, and they the ships have to be able to accommodate them, and it's a lot of work each time. They're whereas with the Nautilus and the Okeanos, they their ROV is with their ship all the time, mm -hmm. yep. and it's you know nothing more than just maintenance really, and occasional swap out of key components. But um, 
uh, yeah, quite different. So, so mobilization is a lot of work. Yeah, the Odin uh, to put all our gear on took a couple weeks just because um, it took that long for all the gear to get there and all the people and the cranes and the um, in technical integration work that had to get done. So it was pretty involved to pull that off. Mm-hmm. So the ships like the Nautilus are more like a long term uh, setup in there. They're yeah. they're they're made for. Yeah, they are, and that they're set up well for mapping and exploration with ROVs and mm-hmm. for AUV type operations. They have dynamic positioning, so they can hold station perfectly, which is great. Oh, that's um, nice. But yeah. yeah, but they may not have all the tools that other oceanographers do. Like some groups want to deploy huge moorings or buoys or mm-hmm. other types of instrumentation that Nautilus or Okeanos isn't well set up for, right? Yep. Um, or launching aircraft or, you know, whatever. And so um, it just depends on on the work. But uh, the, the work that we do with ocean exploration, with mapping and telecommunications and uh, remote science and ROV exploration, that's pretty sta- pretty standard set of tools. And uh, uh, those ships are perfectly equipped for them. And we're trying to grow the fleet with more ships that kind of have that capability, you know. Mm-hmm. So I know yeah. you have limited time with us here today, but. Uh, before we go, what is what was your favorite mission that you've worked on? Yeah, great question. Um, it's it's a funny story for a, a marine geologist to to talk about this, but um, most of my favorite expeditions were when we were doing archaeology. Um, yeah. <laughs> <I> uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's I don't want to say geology is boring. It's not. It's it's awesome, and I love it. Uh-huh. But um, you know, rock, looking at rocks and sediment and mud, you know, for the wrong audience, it gets old pretty quick, you know, it's my it's sister's thing. Definitely. Though. Yeah. yeah, yeah we know <laughs> she, she likes rocks. Oh, we love, well, I'll look at rocks. Rocks are long. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, especially the stories they tell it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting work, but, um, uh, a lot of geology, actually, you need to look deep into the earth. You need to use different tools than just picking up the rock on the seafloor. That 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 really gives you limited amount of information. But um, right. volcanoes, you know, big big systems are neat. Uh, but but when you're using ROVs to do visually exciting things, um, there's nothing like a shipwreck. Uh, the oh, audience, yeah. we see that online with our audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like for me looking for ancient shipwrecks is what we did in the black sea and the mediterranean for many years with bob ballard um it was like christmas to me because we would map these areas and find these targets and you would have no idea what they were and you would dive the rov then down on these targets and and the acoustic target was just kind of a blob right you you knew something was down there and um you could actually make out more characteristics than just a blob like you would know okay this looks promising and you would rank them you would see have all these targets and some could just be rocks or geology or trash but some might have a little outline of a chip and like oh now that's a good target Mm -hmm. and uh it was like christmas because you dive on these things it's like opening a present you you have no idea what it is you're gonna you're about to see and um it was just super cool to do that you come in on on these targets and uh if it was a shipwreck and we found dozens of these shipwrecks it was just incredible. It was like, oh my God, look at this. And sometimes you'd see the mast and the rigging and the wood would all be preserved. Wow. Other times that would be eaten away and you'd just be left with like the cargo of the ship. 
And these, um, we're talking about chips that are probably 2,000, 3,000 years old. Wow. And uh, just amazing because nobody had ever seen them before since the day that ship sank. And people undoubtedly died when those ships sank. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were moving some, some cargo from one ancient port to another ancient port. And you don't know what the cargo was, but you could look at the jars, the amphora that was transporting the cargo, and you could... Um, with the trained archaeologists would um, be able to hypothesize if it was wine or olive oil or fish sauce or whatever. And we collected some of these artifacts and they were, um, uh, after going through a conservation, incredibly well preserved, um, like they were when they were built 3000 years ago. And you could even find the remains of what they were um, transporting. So in some amphora, we found olive pits and others, we found wine, grape seeds and others, we found um fish bones, uh, you know, all sorts of different mysteries like solved by what people were trading back in the ancient in ancient times. And uh, I was on one of the first expeditions in the Black Sea when we found um, there's very low oxygen or no oxygen in the deeper waters of the Black Sea. Right. Yep. So there was prediction, a hypothesis that um, any ships that any shipwrecks that are in the deep Black Sea are going to be incredibly preserved. But nobody yeah. had ever found one. And we found one of the first, probably the first one with evidence that uh, the wood was all perfectly preserved. So we found a That's Byzantine incredible. ship. Yeah, it was about 1,600 years old. Wow. With a mast, with a tree trunk mast and a um, rope rigging still tied to that mast, almost preserved as if it just sank the, the other day. And that for, to me was probably my favorite one because I was the leader of that expedition as a young scientist. And um uh, that's we found what we were looking for. It was really incredible. That's really um, but incredible. It, it, uh, I, I must also mention uh, going to the Titanic. So I was with Bob Ballard for an expedition in 2004, which was returned to the Titanic. Right. So that yep. was uh, pretty exciting, too, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to quickly ask you, when you stumble across these shipwrecks, are they really the stumble across them or are you usually looking for a shipwreck? Yeah, uh, we well, it depends because um, a lot of times we're funded to not particularly look for shipwrecks, but to do other work. And in those cases, you stumble upon them. But um, for this project, we were funded by National Geographic and we were on a mission to find these shipwrecks. So we would um, uh, map our survey routes along what we thought the ancient trade routes were. So yep. and we knew um, from previous work that Bob Ballard had done um, in like the 1990s was uh, that ships didn't just follow the coast. They could actually navigate across open ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, they would also follow the currents. So if you knew what the currents were doing, like the ancient mariner was smart enough to know how to uh, increase their speed by going with the current. And uh, so we would lay out, do, do oceanographic work, figuring out the currents and um, uh, pretty, pretty well, and you wouldn't, you knew where the ancient ports were like, Carthage to Rome, say. Mm -hmm, well, yep. you draw a straight line between Carthage and Rome, and um, that's ought to be where you find the ships. <laughs> so it's not rocket science, really. right? Yeah. But but in the Black Sea, where the ports were a little bit more poorly known and not like Carthage and Rome, right? Um, we're trying to do some predictive works to you know, look along the trade routes, and that's where we would find the shipwreck targets. We would map with sonar. Um, usually steep-toed side-scan sonar because the multi-beam sonar, which is hull-mounted, that's what we use for making bathymetric maps. Mm -hmm. That's not the resolution we need to find small shipwreck targets. Right. So you have to use a deep-toed side-scan system or an autonomous vehicle with side-scan. 
And that's the type of sonar that's much better for looking for things like shipwreck targets. And so we would survey with the side scan along those ancient routes, get the targets, and then dive on the targets with the ROV. So, so there was a method to our madness, but it wasn't um, uh, uh, it wasn't just stumbling upon them. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that that's incredible. I I I was not expecting yeah. to hear that story about the <laughs> the ship you found in the Black Sea. That's in, that's yeah just yeah incredible. really cool. And I I kind of miss you know we it's hard to get funding to do those sorts of projects, right? They're right. more um, yeah they're a little higher risk. They're I I think high reward, but um, they're not like traditional ways to get funding to do something. So those projects don't come at us all, every day. Uh, that's for sure. But um, they're, they're the most fun that I've had uh, doing my, throughout my career is some of those um, cool projects with national geographic. Yeah. And what year was that one? Uh, that was, let's see, that was um, 2000, okay. 2001. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was more than 20 years ago now. Um yeah, and since then, uh, you know, we 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 haven't done as much work with uh, ancient archaeology or ancient shipwrecks. Um, done a little bit. I was just down in the Gulf of Mexico last year, um, looking at more modern shipwrecks, but some that were almost a hundred years old. Um, mm -hmm. In the Gulf of Mexico, one was a one of the earliest oil rigs. Um, back then, they were like pontoon boats, um, and uh, we found uh, a, a ship that was sunk by a U-boat in World War II. And, wow, that's pretty uh, interesting. Some other some other remains. Uh, one was an old fishing vessel. Um, one was an old just wooden ship. We don't know what it was. Barge. Uh, but um, there, the, there's millions of shipwrecks, and yeah, they're all interesting, and they all tell different stories. And um, there are funding pathways to do that sort of work. Um, this one was with the um, BOEM Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. They do all the oil and gas leases and wind uh, offshore wind farm uh, leases. And when they do the survey work to do oil and gas survey or do um, siting the wind farms, they um, find they find shipwrecks. So there's a program where you can um, apply kind of to, to investigate those shipwrecks because BOEM is actually mandated to understand the value essentially of these shipwrecks to see if they need to be protected or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's some of the work that we've gotten involved in lately is, uh, is along those lines of just documenting unknown targets uh, to see if they're um, worthy of protection. You know, uh, some might be uh, historically significant. Right. Yep. And so uh, we've been doing some of that work lately. And then uh, along those lines is an oceanographic um, phenomenon in that the shipwrecks themselves serve as uh, artificial reefs, essentially. So you can imagine a just a flat, muddy bottom of seafloor doesn't hold a lot of marine life um, because uh, benthic organisms like sponges and corals want to attach to a hard substrate. But in the deep sea, there's just a lot of mud. And so you put a shipwreck down there, though, and it all, all of a sudden becomes a hard substrate on which these uh, benthic animals can live. And so shipwrecks become like stepping stones and ecological sort of habitats of their own, uh, which is pretty cool. And it's an interesting area of research. So uh, the Bowen Project recently, we had a bunch of marine archaeologists who were interested in the shipwrecks themselves. But we also had a biologist with us who was interested in the animals that were now living on those shipwrecks. And uh, tells a nice story about um, interconnectivity inter -con between 
um, uh, sites around an ocean uh, by looking at shipwrecks as stepping stones to populations of animals. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You said earlier something I was I was thinking about is that it it seems like there's a lot of people that find, especially the exploration part of like finding actual vessels from people from humans, and it seems like a lot more people connect with uh expeditions like that and it, it and i think it's because there's more of a there's more of like a human connection because there there's some it's not a fossil that we may never have coexisted with or something like that it's there were humans there and you're finding yeah. ancient history so exactly yeah no doubt about it yeah having that human connection i mean this there's definitely people that love watching nature documentaries and all that stuff is great but um uh, history, people that are into history and, you know, human evolution and human history, uh, that those shipwrecks and on even underwater archeological sites, like of human habitation mm-hmm. that are drowned due to sea level rise, incredibly interesting areas of research that, um, has a lot of popularity because of the human connection, like you said, and, uh, there is some work that we've done there too, but, um, we do what we're funded to do. And a lot of that is, uh, looking at the natural resources, not the human resources. <laughs> yeah. 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 So thank you for joining us today. I know the scheduling yeah. get a little uh, iffy, but. Uh, oh, no, this worked, this worked out good for me. So I'm glad it worked out for you too. Yeah. yeah. We'll send you the, that, that uh, link from our other episode that we did. Yeah. Today. Definitely yeah. curious. Check it out. Yeah. And uh, this, this episode should be going uh, live next Wednesday. So we'll, uh, I'll, I'll, Fantastic. Send you, I'll send you those links uh, when we when that goes live. Just All right, guys. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. No, my pleasure. It was fun. So we hope you all enjoyed that interview. That was uh, that was pretty cool. It was very cool. And uh, we're we're always extremely thankful for guests that take the time out of their day to come and join us. Yeah, uh, Dr. Coleman is uh, incredibly accomplished. He's he's made a lot of uh, a lot of incredible. He's done a lot of incredible expeditions and, uh, you know, he's the director of the Inner Space Center. So he's, uh, he's done a lot of really cool things. It's cool to, to hear from him. Yeah. His side of all that and, and kind of the inner workings. So if you guys, uh, haven't, you can go on the website and subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, it should be at the bottom of the main page. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's the autocorrect podcast. And we uh, should be starting uh, actual video episodes in some in some capacity next year. Yep, they're probably going to start with YouTube Shorts, and then uh, if that's successful, maybe we'll go to publishing a full video podcast. Yep. If you uh, if you haven't checked it out already, we uh, released an episode this past Wednesday, uh, an interview with uh, Professor Chris Brown. He's uh, he that was a very interesting interview. Very interesting. Yeah. He's a uh, uh, mechanical engineering professor at WPI. Yep. So check out that interview and uh, share these with people. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, how, that's how we can keep making these is by you guys interacting and sharing. Yeah. So that's going to be it for this episode. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.